0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 41, we'll read the end of chapter 20 and then chapter 21, the first four verses. Luke 20, 41 verses 20, through chapter 21, verse 4. Please give your full attention to the very word of God. But Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the, his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. I was walking through my house the other day and passed the living room and my wife was watching TV And there was one of those celebrity psychologists on there. And he made a statement as I was walking by. He said, the only thing that we fear more than death is humiliation. And that stuck with me. Matter of fact, I've been thinking about it a lot the last several days. The only thing that we fear more than death is humiliation. I think as I... Speak from scripture's perspective, I think death is the ultimate fear that we have in life, but he may be right that humiliation is our most conscious fear, the fear that grips us for much of every day of our lives, the fear of humiliation. I think it's especially true when we're young, because when we're young, death seems far off, and one of the most intense times of the fear of humiliation is middle school. We are deathly fear, terrified of being teased, being made fun of, being laughed at for the way our hair looks or the clothes that we wear or the things that we say or the things that we do. Middle school culture is brutal and it's dominated by the bullies. But when we become adults, it's not like that fear goes away, does it? It becomes a little more subtle, a little more nuanced, more complex but it's just as real. We fear being humiliated. We face constant pressure to measure up to the standards of our peers. Well as I thought about it over the last several days I thought well what what is it that we desire if we fear humiliation what is it that we desire so deeply that we fear losing? It's honor. We have a deep, in the deepest part of our soul, we have a desire for honor. It's something that motivates a lot of our decisions, a lot of our behavior in life. We deeply long to be well-regarded by our parents, by family members, by friends, by coworkers. And as I thought about it, it's not that that desire for honor is inherently wrong. It's the kind of honor that we seek that is wrong and deadly to our souls. In looking at the end of Luke chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21, I have to admit when I sat down to study this passage this week, I questioned why did I put these three little portions together there's three sections to this passage and at first I was like what connects them what what why did I think that these would fit together into one passage for us to study this morning and then I realized that's what ties them together honor what is proper honor what is the wrong kind of honor to seek and what's the right kind of honor to seek bottom line is how do we receive honor in the kingdom that matters, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here at the end of chapter 20, we come to the end of a series of verbal confrontations between Jesus and his enemies, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leadership of the Jewish people. From the moment he entered into Jerusalem, after the triumphal entry, the last week of his life, as he entered into the the gates and the city walls of Jerusalem, he came under attack by these groups, different groups for his arrest, trying to trip him up in something he would say or do that they could accuse him of before the Roman authorities, particularly because their ultimate desire was to crucify him, to see him put to death. What's interesting in this last confrontation between himself and the Jewish leadership is that he initiates the question. In the other ones, they came to him with a question, trying to trip him up. Now he turns the tables and he asks them a question. And in looking at the question he asked, he gives us the first lesson on seeking honor in the kingdom of God. And that lesson is that you have to begin by bowing before the throne of Jesus Christ. We have to honor Christ as Lord if we ever want to receive honor in the kingdom of God. It begins by bowing before the throne of Christ. Jesus' question is provocative, intentionally provocative. He says, how can they, and we see from the context he's talking about the scribes particularly, how can they, the teachers of Israel, the teacher of the Jews, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, let's break down terms a little bit, things that we tend to assume that everybody understands, but when, we, when Jesus says the Christ, he's not referring to his last name. Jesus' name is not Jesus' first name and Christ's last name. That's not the way it works. Christ is a title. Christ was a title given to the Messiah. The word Christ means the anointed one, the one chosen by God to redeem his people and to reign over his kingdom forever. The one promised in the Old Testament. The enemies of Jesus called him Jesus of Nazareth. Just a human being. A misguided teacher leading people astray. That's who he was to the leadership. But Jesus here challenges their conception of who this Messiah would be. In 2 Samuel 7 it says that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And 2 Samuel 7 is the covenant between God and David, where God says to David, he gives him a promise that one of his sons, one of his offspring would one day be on the throne of the eternal kingdom of God and he would reign forever. This is how it's worded in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord says to David, the Lord will make you a house. Remember, David wanted to build a house for God. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house in terms of his lineage he says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Your throne shall be established forever. And from that time on, the people of Israel expected that a son of David and a descendant of David would take the throne and reign forever over God's kingdom. Matter of fact, the prophecy that we are going to hear over the next several weeks, many times coming from Isaiah chapter 9, speaks of the same promise. There, God says through Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a a son is given of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That was the promise throughout the Old Testament that one of David's descendants would sit on this throne forever and reign forever. Think about when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to tell her that the time had come. That the Christ, the Messiah, was about to be born and she would be his mother. This is the promise. He says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Matter of fact, just a few days earlier, during that triumphal entry, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, remember what the crowds shouted and praise to him as he entered into the gates. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus received their praise, acknowledged the rightness of what they shouted. So why does he now seem to be challenging the idea taught in the Old Testament scriptures, taught by the angel Gabriel, taught and shouted by the people outside the gates of Jerusalem? Why does he now seem to be questioning the descendant of David would be the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a David's son. Well, he's not questioning it. The point that he's making as we continue to look at what he says is he's questioning their understanding of who the son of David would be. They believed that the son of David would be just a man. What What What? jesus does here is he goes back to the and this is interesting the most quoted old testament prophecy of the messiah one that is universally accepted by the jews in that day and from that day on uh, all the way back to the day when david first said all the way through the time of jesus to today is seen as one of the most important messianic prophecies of the old testament psalm 110 do you realize that's quoted over 20 times in the new testament as proof that jesus is the christ so he goes to that psalm, Psalm 110, and he says, For David himself, David wrote Psalm 110, David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord, now I'll stop there for a moment, the word Lord there in the Greek is curious. Matter of fact, both times the word Lord is used in that verse, it's curious in the Greek. But if you go back to the original Hebrew, of the Old Testament, when David wrote it, spoke it, the first word is Yahweh. For the Lord, Yahweh, the personal name of the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord, and there in the Hebrew it's Adonai, a a title that's still used for God in the Old Testament, but speaks to it's more of a title than a personal name. But both terms are used in the Old Testament for God. So Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand, take the throne, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, again, all the scribes that Jesus is confronting here and challenging, all the scribes would have acknowledged that Jesus was, that David was talking about his promised descendant, this son that was born to his line, that would become the Messiah, the Christ, that would reign over God's kingdom. But what Jesus points out is what they'd missed all along is that David calls this Messiah his Lord. Now you have to think like a Jewish person here. A Jewish person, you know, so often we think of descendants from an ancestor because of rise of technology and increase in knowledge. We think of descendants of an ancestor to be greater often than the ancestor, but that's not how Jewish people thought. It's not how ancient people thought. The ancestor was always more honorable than the descendant. And so when the Christ was promised to be a descendant of David, it was always assumed that David would be greater than the Messiah or at the very best they could have hoped for that the Messiah would be another David, just like David. That was their best hope. He was either equal to or less than David. And he would come and reign over the throne of God's kingdom. That was the expectation. But that's why it's so important that Jesus says here, But David called him my Lord. David bowed at the foot of the throne of the coming Messiah. He recognized that his son, his future son, would be the Lord, Adonai. Even the implication that he would be superhuman, greater than human. He would be divine. This is what Isaiah prophesied. There's a fascinating prophecy in the chapter 11 of the, of the book of Isaiah. At the beginning of that chapter, you have this promise of the descendant of David, of this, this uh, future Messiah being talked about at the beginning of chapter 11. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David. So he's talking, he's, he's in a kind of an oblique way talking about the line of David again. The Messiah is going to come from the line of David. He calls Jesse or David's line a stump because as we know in the Old Testament, the line of David is temporarily cut off by the captivity, the, the destruction of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But out of that stump of, the, of Jesse, out of David's line, is going to come a shoot. A shoot will arise out of that stump. And he goes on to say, not just a shoot, but A branch. He says a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now clearly from the passage, he's talking about the Messiah. Matter of fact, the next several verses describe the messianic kingdom in a lot of detail. But at the end of that description of the kingdom of the Messiah, it comes back to refer to that son of David, that descendant, that shoot, that branch from David's line that is going to sit on the throne. And listen to how it describes him later in that chapter. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse... The root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire. And there you have a riddle. An intentional riddle in the prophecy. How can one who is a shoot or branch from the stump of David also be the root of David? How could that possibly be true? Only if he's far more than human. Only if he created David. If he's David's creator, could he also be born of the line of David as one who is fully God and fully man to be this superhuman Messiah? You know, it's interesting at the very end of Scripture, the very last chapter, Revelation 22. Jesus himself, the risen glorified Jesus after he's finished all his work of establishing his kingdom and redeeming his people and renewing the heavens and the earth. At the very end of time after judgment day, the risen Jesus Christ stands and listen to how he refers back to that prophecy in in Isaiah chapter 11. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. Jesus is David's creator and son. He is David's Lord. Paul confirms this in talking about the gospel. This is essential. What Paul says is this understanding this about who Jesus is as the Messiah is essential to the gospel. Because he says at the very beginning of Romans 1, he says, "...the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, his divine Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we know that Jesus Christ is Lord? That he is fully God and fully man, and that he has redeemed us and established his kingdom? It's because the Spirit has raised him from the dead. You see, The Messiah, this is something that the Jewish people in his day did not understand, the leadership did not see and understand, is that the Messiah had to be both God and man. Because he had to offer up a sacrifice of a perfect man who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. And yet his death had to be worth We know that Jesus was this Messiah, this one who was man, the son of David, but also the son of God. We know this because God accepted his sacrifice in our place. And we know that God accepted his sacrifice in our place because he raised him from the dead. That's the gospel. We had no use for a king until we first were saved by grace. So, First answer to the question, how do you get honor in the kingdom of God? It begins when you bow before the throne of Christ and proclaim him to be Lord. That's how honor begins in the kingdom of God. There is no honor if you do not bow before the throne of Christ and acknowledge him to be Lord. You must abdicate the throne in your life and acknowledge Christ to be on that throne Not only over your life, but over all creation, over all existence. Whatever is good or admirable in your life comes from him as your Lord. And one day, the scriptures say, we are going to lay our crowns, whatever honor we receive in the kingdom of God, we are going to lay them at the throne of Christ because ultimately it all came from him, our Lord. First step in the path to honor is to bow before the throne of Christ. The second lesson here. You've got to repent of and reject the love of worldly honor. You want honor in the kingdom of God, you need to repent of and reject worldly honor. Not worldly honor necessarily, but the love of worldly honor. Look at verse 46. Jesus now points to these, he's talking to his disciples and he points to these scribes. And he says, beware of the scribes. Now, keep in mind, the scribes were the biblical scholars in that day. The scribes were the teachers of the Jews. They were the experts in the Old Testament. They were lawyers, not in the sense we think of lawyers, but they were experts in the law of God. They were the ones that you went to to find out who God is and what his will is for your life. And Jesus says, beware of the scribes. You know, they've been trying to discredit him in the eyes of his followers, and so what he does in the eyes of his followers is discredit them. Beware the scribes. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. What Jesus does here in this next section at the end of chapter 20 is that he unmasks them. He reveals their hearts and their true intentions. He shows that they lived for the honor of men, not the honor of God. That they loved worldly honor. He says they like to walk around in long robes we don't know exactly what those robes look like in the old testament they had tassels and things on the robes to show their piety it may be referring to that or may be referring to the type of material or the color the way they looked but something about the robes that the scribes wore projected their status their expertise their authority as teachers And then he goes on to say they loved the greetings in the marketplace. And by greetings, he's not talking about, hi, how you doing? He's talking about a a deferential greeting using an exalted title. They wanted to be referred to with respect and honor whenever they were greeted in the marketplace. They loved that. You know, it's interesting. There's a much longer condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. But... In that chapter, in Matthew 23, Jesus, actually interesting, he says, don't call another human being rabbi or teacher or father. He says, for you have one father and one teacher. Now, again, he's not saying it's always wrong to use a title. What he's saying is, don't put your spiritual leaders, especially, up on a pedestal that only belongs to Jesus Christ. You have one teacher, you have one Lord, don't put any human being in the place of Christ. Even if they presume to teach you the word of God, make sure that they are teaching what the Lord teaches in his word. He says, they loved the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. They demanded to be at the head table. They demanded it to be up on the platform. But remember what Jesus said to his disciples back in chapter 11. He said, when you're invited to a feast, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Fred, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Unless we think he's only talking about some kind of dinner party, he broadens it to the entire kingdom. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One of the most important principles of the kingdom of Christ. And then he says, for pretense they make long prayers. When they would pray publicly in front of the people in their glorious robes, they would perform. It wasn't honest, authentic dialogue with God. It was a performance to impress people because they loved worldly honor. This is something that hits home for me as I study a passage like this because for pastors and theologians and spiritual leaders, pride is an occupational hazard. Not in the eyes of the world, they think we're idiots, but in the church, there's the temptation always to pride in a position. And I've seen many spiritual leaders, pastors, theologians destroyed by pride because they had the pride of the scribes. You know, it's interesting, he talks about robes. And I think back in church history that back before the Protestant Reformation in the 1400s, 1500s, before the Protestant Reformation, the priests and those in the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church would wear elaborate robes. Extremely colorful and sparkly robes and big pointy hats. And so that's why when the Reformers came along, they rejected that. Not because color is wrong or sparkly things are wrong or pointy hats are wrong, but because of why they wore them. And so what they would do is they wore what they call the Geneva gown, which is just a black robe. And that was not a, a, a sign of ostentation. It was actually a way of what they would say is it hides the preacher and puts the focus on the word. But an added element to that that I just learned recently is that they wore the Genevan robes, they wore the black robes because they were teachers, and that's what they wore during the week. They were wearing their normal, normal weekday attire because they were teachers, and so they went into the pulpit. They didn't wear something different to show that they were somehow special. They wore what they normally wore. That's one reason I don't wear a robe, because I don't wear a robe to go to work in the week. You'll never catch me wearing a robe in my office, and besides, I won't preach in one because they're hot and uncomfortable same reason I don't wear a tie <laughs> because of the occupational hazard of pride in the position it's the same reason I've always resisted the title reverend I've never really studied the history I don't know why ministers are called reverend but it just reminds me too much of this passage they love the title they love the greeting in the marketplace. And so, I, I actually only use the term reverend. You'll see it in my signature line in my emails because I want people to know that I have credentials. I'm actually an ordained pastor. I'm not just a pretender. But that's the only place I'll use it. And if you call me that, I'm not gonna be offended. I, I'm fine with whatever you wanna call me. Not everything. But, um, <laughs> but my point is, I don't want the temptation. I don't want the emphasis on the title. There's too much of that in the world. That's what the world looks for. He also talks about where you're seated. They love to sit in the prominent seats. I don't know if you notice it, but I avoid those two seats as long and as much as possible. I hate sitting up there on the platform. Not because I'm a terribly humble person, but because I fear pride in my heart. Something that designates status, something as small as that that can designate status that makes me special, that puts me on a pedestal, that puts me in the place that only Christ belongs in your life. Now I'm being open and honest here about how I struggle with the occupational hazard of pride in my life, but what about your calling? You're tempted by, that you're drawn to, that you long to hear. I know those of you in the university community deal with that a lot. Do you have the credentials? Do you get the worldly honor? And it's a great temptation to live for that. What about, what is it in your life? What honor from the world do you long for? What approval? What pat on the back? What reward from the world do you live for? How are you lusting after worldly honor? That's what Jesus is addressing addressing here. The problem isn't the title. The problem is the reason you want it. The problem isn't the seat, it's why you wanna sit there. The problem isn't the robe or any other attire, it's why you want to wear it. The problem isn't with the long prayer, but the reason why you're praying long. What are the symbols of worldly honor that you lust for in your life? Did you notice in that list that Jesus gives of the scribes and their lust for honor, did you notice that he throws in something that doesn't fit? One of these things is not like the other as Sesame Street used to teach you. He throws in a secret sin of the scribes. They devoured widows houses. I puzzle, why did he throw that in there? He did it to expose their hypocrisy. Because they were all about all these outward trappings to say, I'm spiritual, I'm an expert, I know the word of God, you should listen to me, you should follow me. And he says, you're putting on all these outward meaningless trappings where in your heart and in your life you're secretly taking advantage of the weakest, most vulnerable people in Jewish society. Over and over again, these Old Testament scriptures that they profess to be experts in say, take care of the widow, care for the widow, protect the widow. And they were taking advantage of the widow. I don't know what it means to devour their houses. I don't know if they were somehow managing their widow's houses after their spouse died. Whatever they were doing, but they were doing it for obviously financial advantage, taking advantage of widows. He was revealing their hypocrisy. And remember, this Messiah is the king. And according to Old Testament prophecy as well as New Testament prophecy, this king is coming back and he will sit on the throne of judgment and all people will stand before Jesus Christ to be judged. And what he says at the very end here is ominous. He says, they, the scribes, the biblical scholars of the day, the spiritual leaders of Israel, they will receive greater condemnation. You see, Jesus is a just judge. And there's this wrong idea out there in the church that some sins are far greater than other sins. And if you present yourself as a biblical scholar, a spiritual leader, a teacher of God's people, and yet you practice hypocrisy, and you lead people astray, you are a false teacher, you're a false prophet, you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, and you will come under the greatest judgment on judgment day. The deepest pits of hell are inhabited by false teachers and false prophets, like these scribes. You see, receiving honor from other people is not inherently wrong. What makes it wrong? It's the love of that honor. It's like money that way. People misquote that verse all the time. Money's the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what Paul says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Honor is not evil, honor is not wrong in this world. But the love of honor can send you to hell. You know, the question that torments us, all of us, Many different forms of it, but it's one central question, and it torments us almost every day. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough for my parents? Am I good enough for my teachers? Am I good enough for my boss? Am I good enough for my coworkers? Am I good enough for my friends? That question can destroy you. You now, Jesus the Messiah answers that question? You're not good enough. You're not nearly good enough. You fall far short of the glory of God. But I have made you acceptable. You know, the word humiliation, it's interesting, it's a theological term. When you study systematic theology, you'll study. Humiliation, and it's talking about the humiliation of Christ. Do you know what the humiliation of Christ refers to? It refers to him being incarnated. When we celebrate Christmas for the next few weeks, remember that. You're celebrating the humiliation of your Lord. That the one who reigned on the throne in heaven as the Son of God eternally in eternity past, added to his divine nature a human nature. That's humiliating for the Son of God. He became man and he dwelt among us. He not only became man, but he lived among sinners. He lived in a fallen world under a curse. He suffered. And not only did he suffer like you and I suffer, but he suffered at the hands of his own people, the people who should have been worshiping him. He had a crown of thorns put on his head. He had a, a robe put on him to mock him. They spit upon him. And then they nailed him naked to a cross to die the most horrific death a human being can die. The humiliation of Christ. You're not good enough. But he took the penalty for that. He paid for that completely. But then Paul says, God raised him from the dead. And what's interesting about Philippians 2, as Paul recounts the humiliation of Christ, he introduces it by saying, you should have the mind of Christ. You should see humiliation and honor, not like the world teaches you to see it, but you ought to see it the way Christ has presented it. He says in Philippians 2, let me read that passage to you. Philippians 2 beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Remember what the principle of the kingdom is? he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the next verse says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The path to glory, the path to honor in the kingdom of God. You see, the path to honor, as we saw, begins with proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and then refusing to love the honor that the world offers. But that leads to what honor you do seek. Once you have been made acceptable in the sight of God through the blood of Christ, once you have been raised from your spiritual death to spiritual life, once you have been adopted into God's family, you are brought into the kingdom by grace, then you seek Christ's kingdom first. You live for his glory. That's the way to honor in this world. You see, that's the connection of the very first few verses in chapter 21. There's a very clear connection between the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21. You know what the connection is? The widow. This is the widow that the scribes, Jesus do, very next thing, sits in the temple courts watching the people present their gifts. There were 13 receptacles in the courts of the temple with kind of a, a bugle shaped uh, places where you would throw your coins and, and your currency to give gifts to the, to the priest, to give gifts to the temple. He's watching the people do it. The wealthy people are coming through and throwing in big gifts. Luke doesn't say that. He says they're wealthy. But in other gospels it says they threw in large gifts. And then there comes this widow. And Jesus honors the widow. She throws in two small coins. In the old King James they called them mites. You'll notice if you have ESV in the footnote it probably calls them leptas. That was the technically correct name for them. They were leptas. It was the smallest unit of currency. It was their penny, so to speak. But what it was really worth, and it's really hard to measure what currency was worth then to what it is now, but here's an idea, is that it took 128 leptas to make a denarius. What's the significance of that? Well, a denarius, if you'll remember, is how we define, the best way to understand a denarius, that was about a day's wages for a common laborer. So it took 128 leptas to have a denarius, and a denarius was one day's common labor for a common labor, one day's wages. So two leptus is one sixty-fourth of a day's wages for a kind of a lower middle class type worker. Not very much money. Not pennies, but not very much money. Certainly tiny compared to the big gifts that were given by the wealthy people. But Jesus says, I truly I say to you, now when Jesus says truly I say to you, pay attention, he's given you a principle of the kingdom. He says, truly I say to you, what she has done is greater. It's, she has put more in more than all of them. Add up all the gifts of the wealthy people, these big gifts they've been putting in the receptacles, her two coins is more valuable in the kingdom of God, is more honorable in the sight of God than all of those gifts put together. Her gift to God's kingdom was tiny by human standards but her gift was measured by her heart's intention, not the worldly value of it. Her gift was measured by how it compared to the resources available to her, not the value in the eyes of the people around her. She loved the Lord with all of her heart and her mind and her soul. She gave herself over to the Lordship of Christ. His will was the will for her life. She trusted in him to provide for all her needs. So she was willing to give her whole daily ration, everything she had to live in for that day. She was willing to give it to the work of the Lord because she trusted in him and all glory must go to him because he is Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you as well. That's the promise of our king. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you as well. Leon Morris, the commentator, said this. He said, what matters is not the amount one gives, but the amount one keeps for himself. What matters is not the amount one gives, but how it compares to how you're using your resources for yourself. Who's getting the glory? Who's the Lord of your resources? Does it all belong to him or just a portion Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. That doesn't mean you smile when you put money in the plate. What that means is you give out of a heart of love and thankfulness and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a cheerful giver. You joyfully give to the glory of your Lord and Savior. This poor, helpless widow This woman who is at the very lowest rung of the social strata in in Israel, this poor helpless widow illustrates the kingdom principle that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You want honor in God's kingdom? You want honor that lasts for eternity, not just for the moment when somebody notices? Honor Christ as Lord. Repent of and reject worldly honor the love of worldly honor, and seek Christ's kingdom first. Live to hear this one statement that's promised at the end of time when Jesus Christ comes back to bring the fullness of his kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, help us to see this lust for worldly honor that consumes our souls that drives so much of our behavior, that affects how we treat people, that affects how we use our income and how we live our lives. Help us to identify that lust and to reject it. Give us the Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith, to enable us to live for the glory of Christ. I pray that our lives and our church would be a testimony to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life and our hope in his return to make all things good and right. We love him, Lord. We thank you for him. In Christ's name, amen.